0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So it's been been a little bit of a wild week on top of whatever things each of us had to deal with individually, personally, we had to endure images and videos and, and commentary of things none of us ever want to see happening in our nation's capital wherever the blame lies for that or wherever responsibility falls oh, one thing seems absolutely certain that, that that that's not how we'd like things to be going things uh, things seem out of alignment you know you know what i mean um have you ever broken a bone, right? And you had to you had to go through that period of your life with parts of your body that were broken and and not properly aligned. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Alignment, alignment. I remember reading about this railroad crash that happened in uh, Graniteville, South Carolina, and it happened because a railroad switch was out of alignment. And there were actually two trains involved in this railroad crash. One train, it was called P-22. It was heading in one direction and the other train, 192, was coming in the opposite direction and the the uh, part of the one heading in the other direction, or the, the part of the track called the switch rather, Was supposed to be set in such a way that the trains could pass one another safely with no problems, but that wasn't the case. The tracks were improperly aligned and as a result, the two trains collided. Or, you know, think about alignment with your car, your automobile. Most of us are probably familiar with this. You're you're driving along and you're feeling the steering wheel, right? Like sort of pulled to the curb. It feels like the, the, the side of the road like has a magnet and it's just like pulling you over there and you're having to like fight with the steering wheel to, to keep going straight. If you want to let the steering wheel sort of do its own thing, it's going to just run you into the curb or off the road. And if that's occurring, there's a good chance the car is out of alignment. Once it's properly aligned or realigned, it functions like it's supposed to function. And so on hard days or during hard seasons or hard years like 2020 or even the hard beginning of 2021, it can so often feel like life is just out of alignment. What is going on? Like, are, we, aren't, we aren't connecting with people. Like, where's that been for the last year? It's been so hard connecting with each other. Like relationships aren't lining up like they're supposed to be lining up. Things aren't working like they're supposed to be working. Things aren't working like we're used to them working. Church has felt that way for me. I miss meals together. I really miss meals together. I miss being able to talk without masks. I miss being able to hug each other. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not. It's not supposed to be this way. Things are out of alignment. But here in 2021, perhaps right out of the gate, maybe, maybe it makes sense for us to like take stock. To do some life inventory. Maybe to do some community inventory or to to gauge our alignment is what I'm getting at. How do our thoughts align with God's thoughts? How do our actions align with the actions that God desires? How do our emotions align with God's emotions? I'm sure God feels deeply about all that's transpiring in our world and in our lives. But are we doing what He desires, what He wants? Do we have it in mind to do what we want or what he wants? Are we in alignment? Or are we out of alignment? That goes for us on an individual level as well as a community level, as a church family level. And so as we approach our focal text for the day, Genesis 2, 4 through 25, that's what I want you to be thinking about as Alignment. In particular, I want us to think about that from three different perspectives, alignment with God's world, alignment with God's work, and alignment with God's wants. And I think if we're attentive, right, paying attention, if we're attentive, there might be some valuable things to hear in this text, some things that flow from this text. And I think if we're open as we enter Genesis, we can encounter God. So we're going to consider the first of three sections or three portions of, of this longer passage today. We're going to look at verses 4 to 14 first, and they say the following. These are the generations of the sky and of the land when they were created, God's world. In the day that Adonai, Adonai, by the way, just means Lord, right, in Hebrew. In the day that Adonai God, or Lord God, made land and sky, each plant of the field did not yet exist on the land. And each herb of the field had not yet sprung up. So wait a minute, we just read Genesis 1, and it said all this existed, so what's going on? I'll talk about that in a moment. For Adonai God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no human to cultivate the grounds. But a mist went up from the land and watered the whole face of the ground. And Adonai God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living creature and Adonai God planted a garden. Now look at this really closely. In verse eight, am I there? Adonai God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put Adam whom he had formed and Adonai God sprouted from the ground every tree that is pleasant to behold and good for food and the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil that's what the little logo there on the left is representing Verse 10, a river went down out of Eden to water the garden and from there was parted and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It circulates through the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that circulates through the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekil. This is the one which flows to the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so last week we read Genesis 1 and it was this grand poem, this Hebrew poem to begin our family novel, our family story. And it talked about how God created the world and indeed God created us, humanity. We are made in his image. And the command, right? You remember me saying this from last week? The command, which is essentially the whole point of Genesis, is to fruitfully multiply God's image throughout the land. And in, in addition to that, it's important to note that that the confession of Genesis 1 and 2 is that at its core, this is God's world. This is God's world. And here's something I want you to hang on to. God's world is not meaningless or random. God's world is full of order and it's full of meaning, just bursting with meaning everywhere if we just have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so I want, I want to show you this. And, when Genesis, and what Genesis 2 does here, in a sense, right, uh, it, it zooms in on one portion of that world that's created in Genesis 1. It draws us into this beautiful place called Eden. And in the east of Eden, there's a mountain. And on top of the mountain, up on top of the mountain, there's a lush garden. And this lush garden has two trees in it and it has a cloud hovering above it and it has a stream flowing out and down the sides of the mountain and these streams become rivers and the rivers encircle and flow around the mountain. It's this beautiful and ironic place. It's our motherland. To me, when I read this story, it sounds like the Ko'olau's on a rainy day. You drive by them and, and, and you see the streams and the waterfalls just rushing down and they stun you and they kind of want to stop you in your tracks, but you can't because you're on the interstate. So you keep going. But the author of Moses, the author of Genesis, Moses, he, he zooms in on this garden and he's asking everyone who encounters this story to turn your attention to this garden in the east of Eden on top of a mountain for just a few moments. Because this is where your mother and your father and the faith came from. This is where your family started. This is your history, your family story. This garden on top of a mountain is the place of your roots and my roots. Now here's a point to consider that Genesis 2 doesn't spend hardly any time talking about other places. Gets four other places like Cush and whatever mentioned, but doesn't spend time talking about those. This one Eden is the only one that really receives attention. This is the one that's important. This garden is what's significant. And so from a human perspective, this mountaintop garden in Eden is the world. Like from the Hebrew, from the Israelite perspective, this garden is the world. At least the whole inhabited world at this time. That's the only place people live after all. This is the holy mountain where God created humans in his image, or to put it differently, this mountain is indicative of the world. On it, we have God dwelling there, his presence in a cloud, as is the case as he follows Egypt through much of their history, or Israel through much of their history. But we're brought into this garden mountain world, and the prophet Ezekiel, The, in the prophet Ezekiel, the earthly home of God and the earthly home of humans is spoken of by him as Eden, the Garden of God, the Holy Mountain of God. You can see that in Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen. But there are numerous other descriptions like this in Jewish literature. And as I've said before, what happens in later Jewish thought is that God's presence it relocates from the top of this mountain. You all know this. As it relocates from the top of this mountain, one of the first places it goes is to this tabernacle. And it moves with the people and the designs of this tabernacle and the designs on this tabernacle, the decorations on the tabernacle, they're reminiscent of a garden. They're meant to be reminiscent of Eden and God's initial presence there. And then when God's presence relocates from the tabernacle to the temple, the temple is built and structured and set up in such a way that it's supposed to be reminiscent of the mountaintop garden, the home of God and humans, the first home. And as you know, in Revelation, we, we just spend much time talking about this. The picture there is something similar, right? One difference, though is that in Genesis, the rivers flow down and they encircle this mountain. And in Jewish thought, the waters there were a place of chaos. You can read that in Genesis 1. It was chaotic and then the spirit hovers over it and calms it down. And these waters were representative. They were sort of one of the gateways to the abode of the dead, the underworld. And in Revelation, what happens is that the waters flow down and they run around the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. But they're life-giving. They're no longer death-dealing. They're no longer chaotic. They're orderly. And there's something to be said for that. And you know, so many times in our lives we can experience God's presence almost as if we're back on that Edenic mountaintop only to have it choked out and squelched. It can be snuffed out by whatever we're dealing with. I'm sure you've had it happen. Someone says something great to you You're on cloud nine in God's presence and as soon as you turn around, here comes a thorn in your side. Tries to knock you out of alignment. You receive a blessing and here comes an adversary trying to knock you out of alignment. crossword, a hateful look, a cold demeanor, jealousy, envy, whatever, becomes something like a, a pothole that when you hit it, just jacks you up, and throws you out of alignment. And so we got to realign, you know, sometimes our world and our world views, the way we look at the world, they're co-opted by the world's views. So we fall into using the language of the world. Buying into the schemes of the world. Stepping foot into the traps of the world. And before we know it, you know what? We're no longer distinct as God's people because we just look like more of the world that believes it can exist without God's world and believes it can exist without God. And so we slide into the chaos. But we got to realign. We got to realign, seek to return to God's presence. We got to keep our eyes on Him. Keep our eyes on the cloud hovering in the garden, the cloud who brings us healing and hope. We got to seek alignment with God's view of the world. You ever fall into that? You ever catch yourself sounding like the world? Thinking like the world? Acting like the world? Dressing like the world? Carrying yourself like the world? Pledging your allegiance to the world? Man, I stumble and trip. I'm a pastor. I stumble and trip. I fall all over myself. I trip over my own feet. I become a jerk when a bike tire pops. But the Christian walk, as we Nazarenes like to, to zoom in on, is sanctification. Being made more holy, becoming more holy. Aligning more and more with Him and His worldview. Living so that, you know what, my thoughts are closer to His thoughts. And my emotions are closer to his emotions and my actions are closer to his actions. Listen, it's easy to align with a world that's trying to act as if this place isn't God's. It's easy, easy. It's easy to be selfish. It's easy to be self-centered. It's easy to be self-focused and self-concerned, but what God desires is that we align with Him and His view of the world. That we live like this world is His. So as we look at the next several verses, we'll see that part of God's desires is that in this world of His, we bear His image and carry out His work. The verses say this, Adonai God took Adam and settled him in the garden of Eden. Now don't mix up by the way, don't mix up Eden like with the garden in Eden. Like Eden's a big place, the garden's just one place off in the east of Eden. So don't conflate those. They're two different things. But uh, he settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and guard it, or to keep and guard it. And Adonai God commanded Adam, saying, From every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you'll surely die. And Adonai God said, It's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And I formed from the ground every animal of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called, each living creature became its name. And Adam gave, Adam gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for humanity, there was not found a helper comparable to him or comparable to him. And remember, I noted earlier, this is the mountain at this point in time. It, this mountain was the whole inhabited world. There was not life anywhere else, human life anyways. No one else lived anywhere. This mountain from then, from a human perspective or from a human vantage point was the world for all intents and purposes. It was a sacred place because it was the locus, the center of God's presence. Again, the tabernacle was later based on this garden. And the temple too was patterned off this garden. And so if we read backwards then, the Garden of Eden was the first sanctuary. Right? Follow me. The garden, if we read backwards from temple to tabernacle, which were both based on the garden, the garden was the first sanctuary, was the first temple. It was just a garden temple. And Adam was its first priest. And God tells Adam to cultivate and guard this place, this sanctuary, this temple. He's to be priest over it. And so Moses, when he writes the book of Numbers, uses the same exact language for the priests from the tribes of Levi or Levi. They are in the exact same terms told, cultivate and guard the tabernacle. The same words are used for Adam here in Genesis. Cultivate and guard this place, this temple. This is God's work. And in the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 3, God will make Adam and Eve clothing. I love this. And just as he provides clothing for Adam and Eve, so also he provides clothing for the sons of Aaron, the priests. In Leviticus 18 or 813. And there's great significance to this. Something that's significant to me and to you, to us as the community of God and as the bride of Christ. And is that we must align our work with God's work. Just as Adam was called to, we must cultivate and guard this place of God's presence. In this place of God's presence, not guarded in like a defensive way, necessarily, but guard it in a way that uh, you would tend to anything or anyone that you love and care about and hold near and dear. Guard it and keep it in that way. We guard we guard God's presence by by clinging to Scripture, yearning for the Holy Spirit, and remaining. Committed to being a community that, that keeps Jesus at the center. Look, if we're going to align or realign ourselves, then Jesus has to be the, the center point off of which we base every adjustment. Cultivating and guarding the presence of God here, His church, this church, even the bridge church means digging like deep into the soils of our heart minds. It means going at it together rather than alone. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And it means putting each other and each other's interests first. It means adhering to the commands of God and aligning with them. And I want to remind you, alignment precedes achievement. Let that sink for a second. Alignment precedes achievement. Some people get it twisted. They think they can achieve spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and achieve spiritual fulfillment without the work of first getting aligned. Nope. (laughs) Doesn't happen that way. Alignment precedes achievement. you get aligned with God's worldview and God's work in order to achieve spiritual growth and maturity and fulfillment. And that's on you. Huh. That's on you. That's on me. And you know what? It looks different for each of us, right? It does look different for each of us. We're at all at different stages in life. Every single one of us, all at different stages in life. We have different sets of life experiences. And so there's no way, for instance, right, uh, I can possibly stand up here on any given Sunday and tell you each personally how to like work this all out. How to achieve your own spiritual growth and maturity and fulfillment. Can't do it. But in general, we can turn to the scriptures week in and week out. And as we do, Ask if we're aligned with what it says. Are we aligned with God's world or worldview and God's work. Are we aligned with God's wants? You know what? The, the the next set of verses might pose this question for us. They say this. Adonai God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. As Adam slept, he God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And Adonai God made from the rib which he had taken from Adam, a woman, and brought her to Adam. No, this was not the first instance of a man and a woman, right? But Adam said, this time, nobody get that joke? Come on, a few, a few of you. Um, Adam said, this time, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, and this shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and will join with this woman and they'll become one flesh. And the two of them were both naked, Adam and his woman, and they were not ashamed. One of the things I love about this passage is that Adam, like Christ, is depicted as giving his body for his bride. Like literally. Literally. Something else that hits me is this, that God, as I was alluding to a moment ago, wants humans to exist together. And more than that, as they exist together, to be in unity. He wants Adam and Eve in unity. It's something He wants. He desires. He longs for. That was inherent in, in creating humanity. His wanting humans to live together in unity. You know, there are a lot of things we might want in this life. Want this, want that, want whatever. But our wants need first and foremost to align with God's wants. And our wants need to be filtered through God's wants. Let me give you three things. What does God want? I think I have three things, three things I want to share with you that he wants. In our faith tradition as Nazarenes, we, have, we ardently affirm the truth that God wants us to be holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect. And so I want to ask you this morning, look, look in. Take a, just stop right now. Look in. I'm going to ask, do you want to be holy? Like ask yourself, do I, do I really want to be holy? you know holiness it's a relationship word it's not just like a personal individual thing you know it's a relationship word we get that twisted too holiness is at its core a relationship word and 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 really in, in theological terms it has to do holiness with our proximity to God. That's what holiness has to do with. So like you're either moving away and getting less holy or you're moving closer and getting holier. It's a proximity term. And it's always in relation to God. God's that, that center, epicenter of holiness. So it makes sense that the more we're in God's presence or the closer we're drawing to God's presence, the, the closer we move to His holiness and the holier we become. Whereas we Nazarenes like to say sanctification. Sanctification. You know, being and becoming holy. God wants that. And are you aligned with that want of His? Because He wants that. Or let me ask you, are you indifferent? Are you indifferent? You know, you can be indifferent without even realizing it. And that brings us to our word of the week, indifferentism. Indifferentism is living life without actually being influenced by, by God or your trust in God. So are you operating, follow, are you operating in a state of alignment or indifference? Like what is your mode? What is your state, your status? Alignment or indifference? I mean, is it evident that you're studying scripture? Is that evident in your life? Or are you like indifferent? Are you in line with that, or are you, you indifferent? Is it evident that you are growing and maturing, or are you just kind of like indifferent about that? Like, where's the evidence? <laughs> like, are we in a place of indifference, or is it like it doesn't matter if I read today? Doesn't matter if I study today. Doesn't really matter if I pray today. Doesn't really matter if I check on someone today, even though I feel the nudging of the Lord to do so. Doesn't really matter if I encourage someone today or discourage someone today. Doesn't really matter where I go, what I spend, what I do, what I say, what I think, how I feel, and so on. Are you in a place where you would call yourself a Christian, but you're actually living in a state of indifferentism? Because here's the thing though, whatever benefits come to you personally or me personally, whatever growth happens in us personally, whatever spiritual gifts or talents we have personally, none of it's just for us personally. It's for the edification of the church family, the church of honor, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, your personal holiness. Hear me when I say your personal holiness isn't even about you, mainly. <laughs> it affects all of us. That's the thing about holiness, right? That's the thing about it. There's, there's kind of a catch to holiness. There's this minister named Rowland Williams. He said it this way. Holiness happens when you're not looking, basically. Holiness happens when you're not thinking about you. That's why he says, there are no self-help books on being holy. As I've said before, self-help, self-help, help its isn't even something the Christian should be concerned with. We're not meant for self-help. We weren't made for self-help. As this portion of Genesis reminds us, two humans were created and they were made for one another. We were made as humans to be in community. Self-help is not, not, in a sense, of the Christian vocabulary. Community help is our vocabulary. (laughs) How is what each of us is doing affecting the community? Because man, we get it twisted sometimes. We get out of alignment. We go off the tracks. Here's a third one that God wants. I want you to love his church, or a second one he wants. I want you to love his church. We know that, we, we know that. But are you aligned with that want of His? Is church something of second-class importance? Are you putting in the effort to edify the body of Christ? Or are you being lax? Could you give more? Give more uh, time, more effort, more support? Are you truly loving His church? Has church become about what you want, what you like, dislike, enjoy, don't enjoy? Or is it a place where you come and worship and you build up the body of Christ because you're here? God wants you to love his church just like he wanted Peter to love her and care for her and nurture her. This week I've been reading a book uh, by the scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson and uh was teaching teaching some in a class this week and we are using this book. But this book is called The Creed. And it walks section by section through the Apostles' Creed that, that we say every week at, at the start of the service. And at one point, uh, he, he says this, Johnson says this, he says, One cannot read the Old Testament except as the story of God's effort to shape a distinctive people among the nations of the earth. God called and nurtured this unlikely people, not for its own sake, but for the sake of revealing in the world God's glory. Remember the point of Genesis. Showing all other humans how the power and presence of the Lord can transform He can transform their destructive patterns of individualism that grow from the disordered drives of sin. He can transform that to the constructive patterns of life lived together in fidelity, faithfulness, and compassion. He continues and he says this, and one cannot read the New Testament except as the story of God Establishing and nurturing precisely the same sort of community as the temple of the living God. Now, not on the basis of a revealed law, but on the basis of the power of the Holy Spirit. He says this, latch on. We find no exhortations. We find no, like, no exhortations directed to individual Christians in the New Testament as though transformation were merely a matter of personal virtue. The New Testament, he says, always speaks to the attitudes, dispositions, and practices of communities. Woo! Woo! Mm. Its writings are always explicitly or implicitly addressed to a public assembly of believers. And that's, that's powerful and humbling. If you have ears to hear that, that's powerful and humbling. It's a reminder that our community isn't about me and it isn't about you. It's about God with us. Emmanuel. And it's a reminder that whenever we take the Lord's Supper, that's about God with us. It's a reminder that whenever we sing together, raise our voices in song and worship, or listen actively together in worship to a message, the, the, the message isn't an exhortation to you. Just individually, it's meant for us, God with us transformation wasn't merely in the new testament a matter of personal virtue it always speaks johnson said to the attitudes and dispositions and practices of communities and so anytime we begin slipping into that thinking i'd rather do this i'd rather do that i'd rather get this or that or you know i want this i don't i don't like this i don't like it whatever We got to catch ourselves because it's not about me, myself, and I. It's about the community of God, the bride of Christ, us, God with us. It's about edifying his bride. And so here's two things God wants. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to love his church. And the third is what I've touched. He wants us to keep Jesus Christ at the center. And it's so easy for Christ to be like nudged out of the center. Man, I'll tell you what. So many things contribute to trying to make that happen. Our own thoughts nudge him out. Our emotions, our wants, nudge him out. Worldly desires nudge him out. Worldly teachings nudge him out. Worldly preaching, nudge him out. But you're supposed to show up and, and love God with your all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just one of those, all of them. You're supposed to be operating on all four cylinders. Yeah? Social movements can try to nudge him out, political agendas can try to nudge him out. Sin, evil, hatred, violence, All of it can contribute to like trying to nudge Jesus out of the center and put that thing more in the center instead. But all those things need to be seen through the filter of Jesus at the center. God longs for him. He wants for him to be at the center. And so what does all this mean? What's the significance? What's the importance I might start asking those questions a lot going forward. Each week, I'm going to try, some, try something new here. Um, I'm going to offer you a bottom line. Okay, A bottom line focuses on like a final outcome or a total outcome. When I talk about the bottom line, that's what I'm getting at. The final outcome, the total outcome. What's the bottom line? What's the bottom line here today? I think it's this, that God wants you He wants us to align with his world and worldview, his work, and his wants. But there's a catch. Earlier I, I talked about cars and how they often need aligned. You may not know a lot about cars, but in many vehicles, There are these three main sections on the inside of a car that you have to handle before you can get a car in proper alignment. And you don't need to know about those. I was going to tell you all about them, but you don't need to know about those, right? But there's three parts of a a car in the inside that need to be given attention before you can align a car. What you do need to know is this, is that those three parts are inside the car. Why is that so important? Let me put it more simply, alignment occurs on the inside. Nobody can make you get aligned. I can't force you to align, can't force any one of you to align. I can't say or do anything that'll cause you to align or realign. Man, that happens inside you. It happens, as I said last week, very simply by showing up and giving the spirit more to work with. Man, I I talked about that all week with the students. That's our, our motto for the year, giving the spirit more to work with. That's how it happens, man. That's how the alignment on the inside happens. When you show up, What's your posture? Even physically, like, maybe what's your posture? It can speak volumes. What's your mentality when you show up? Are you encountering the the singing and the giving and the, the table and the message as a means of giving the spirit more to work with? That's what it boils down to. Are you showing up with a disposition or a posture where you're essentially saying, like, I'm here, Spirit, give me a line with your worldview, your work, and your ways. Because if you're not, then you're probably doing it wrong. The bottom line is this. God wants you to align with His worldview, His work, and His wants. And that... Starts on the inside. And that alignment always precedes achievement. You know, this week, Uncle Ray came over to my house again. I love this, love that dude. And after we played out in my backyard, we played in the dirt for a couple hours uh, working in the garden. We are uprooting some plants and weeds and roots and whatnot. We, we took a break. We sat on a little concrete wall, sitting on this rock wall. And he began, he started talking to me about Revelation. He started talking to me about Genesis. I asked him if I could share this. He said, yeah. Um, and eventually he, he brought it back around to last week's sermon. <laughs> Man, he brought a he brought an o-o like a spear to my house yesterday. He brought a a big shovel and he brought a little shovel and he brought his weekly study guide. Man, it was a tough week. That was so, so edifying and encouraging. Many he struggles with a hearing issue The dude can't even hear. And he digs in. He studies every week. He's here every Sunday. He's at peer group every chance he gets. He's at prayer group on Sunday mornings. He's often at mob. Can't hear what's going on, but he's still there. And he's working in spite of his challenges. He's doing what he can to be aligned. He could choose to just throw in the towel. I can't can't hear anything, I'm done. Like choose to give up, to criticize and complain and leave or whatever. He's choosing instead to align. And it flows, just like oozes out of a teachable spirit. He's got teachability. No matter, no matter that the teaching is is coming from somebody who's a lot younger. No matter the teaching's coming from a young owly, the teachability is there. Or to put it differently, he's giving the spirit more to work with. Period. And this week. This year, but let's start with just this week out ahead of us. May the same be true of all of us. Let's give the Spirit more to work with. Let's hit the bottom line. God wants us to align with His worldview, His work, and His wants. Amen? Stand for the benediction. gonna you raise your hands up and receive this bandage and now brothers and sisters may you get aligned may you align with God's worldview with God's work and God's wants knowing that that alignment happens on the inside first and may you commit To giving the Spirit more to work with. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.